Welcome to the Vitality Radio Podcast, your source for the truth about health, wellness, and real alternatives to drugs, surgeries, and the status quo of healthcare. Here, you'll find information that empowers you to take control of your health. But it's not just about health and wellness. It's about the politics of healthcare and protecting your health freedom. Now, here's your host, Jared St. Clair. Welcome to Vitality Radio. I'm your host each and every week. My name is Jared St. Clair, and this episode is going to be a good one. I know this for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, I have uh, gone over this topic in some detail a couple of times on Vitality Radio, and the first time I did it, which was a couple of years back, it was and still is, I think, my most downloaded episode that I've ever done on this topic that we're going to talk about today. And this time, it's not just me doing a lot of reading and looking at a lot of studies and trying to digest that and then regurgitate it out to you, but now I have a true expert with me to talk about this today on Vitality Radio, and I am thrilled to bring her to you. The topic will be vitamin K2 and the calcium paradox. We're going to talk about that in some detail today, and uh, I'm so excited to have my next guest. We'll talk about her book. We'll talk about her research, and I think we're going to answer a lot of your questions on vitamin K2 today. But before we get into that, I'll remind you that if you do have questions about anything that you hear on Vitality Radio, just call us at 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662. Or you can chat with us online at vitalitynutrition.com. We'd love to talk to you either way. All right, I would like to go ahead and introduce my guest. Her name is Dr. Kate Rayom. I believe I got that right. Kate Rayom. Mm -hmm. uh, she's a doctor of naturopathic medicine and best-selling author, a former faculty member at the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine. Dr. Kate is a renowned expert in the field of natural health and speaks internationally on many topics related to natural medicine. She is the author of the bestseller, Vitamin K2 and the Calcium Paradox, How a Little-Known Vitamin could save your life. Dr. Kate, welcome to Vitality Radio. Thank you, Jared. I'm delighted to be on the show. This is really a, an exciting, and I say exciting on every show because I get so excited about doing this show, but uh, I I have to tell you just a quick story about how you came to be on Vitality Radio. I was on uh, the air with... Uh, someone from Natural Factors, and I was talking to my my uh, rep with Natural Factors, and those who listen to Vitality Radio know that I'm a huge fan of Natural Factors products, and I was digging around just looking for, you know, new uh, people that I could invite on the show to talk about topics that I hadn't talked about a whole bunch of times, or topics that I felt like I was uh, maybe ill-suited ill to get all of the information out there, and your name came up and she said, literally, she wrote the book on this. You've got to have her on your show. Dr. Kate is amazing. And I said, sign me up, vitamin K2 and Dr. Kate, I'm ready to be here. So so let's get into this. Uh, first off, I'm very curious, just a little bit, we, we talked a little bit about your history, but how did you come to start studying K2 specifically? Oh my goodness, this was uh, back in probably the early 2000s, maybe coming up on even as late as 2010, I came across some research on vitamin K2 and I thought, 
how is it possible I got through my whole training residency in, in naturopathic medicine, a huge, you know, focus on nutrition, and there seems to be a vitamin I haven't heard about. Like, how is that possible? So I started to dig and thought, maybe it's just a little nutrient that doesn't have a, a big role to play in our health. And the more digging I did, the more I found this was a really important vitamin that had been overlooked, there was quite already a bit, a large body of research around it. And the more research I did, the more digging I did, the more interesting it became. And I realized that I needed to share that information, uh, pass it along, because it was really, you know, news you can use something that would help people uh, with their health and a missing piece to the puzzle of a lot of different health conditions. Excellent. And I'm curious because it's no small undertaking to write a book. I've never done it. I've actually considered it and thought, you know what? I'm great at talking, not so great at writing. I'll stay I'll stay in my in my area that I feel like I'm I uh, deliver the goods, I guess, and that is through my voice more so than through uh, the written word. But I have talked to a few authors and this is a big deal writing a book. So first off, I'm curious, have you written more than one? Not yet. So far, this is my only book because it was okay. such a labor of love. Mm -hmm. And in addition to the health side of things, there was a super interesting history and, and backstory to this nutrient, which you wouldn't think, how could the history of a vitamin be interesting? And yet it was. And so there was almost lore, you could say, um, when it came to this nutrient in terms of how it was sort of discovered and then how it was overlooked for a very long time and kind of hiding under our noses in plain sight. Um, so it was a really fascinating topic that came together in some ways almost like a story. All right. So then with a million topics that I'm sure you could have chosen to write about, right? I mean, there's so many things in natural health and wellness that uh, have been written about that you could write about. Is it safe to say that a big part of the motivation to write about K2 is because you felt like that story needed to be told more than many of the others? It kept me up at night. Like I needed to <laughs> <laughs> let people know um, that there was this interesting, fascinating nutrient there with all this research behind it. Um, that was this, like I said, this missing piece to the puzzle. And it, it, it literally did keep me up at night. I, I had to write the book. <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. And how long's the book been out? You know what? This is actually this year, the 10th anniversary of the book being out, which is surprising because it still is a topic that a lot of people don't know about. You think you write a book and then everybody's going to know about it. Um, but there's still a lot of questions that I get asked about it, people that don't know about it or have heard something, but they're not sure what. So it still is relevant um, and fresh uh, and everything. There's nothing that has been, say, refuted. Uh, everything has been, you know, more research coming out to support uh, what I wrote about 10 years ago. Well, if you wrote about it 10 years ago, yeah, you were on the cutting edge, I think, of vitamin K2. It was I, we were talking before the show about, uh, you know, you've been doing this for a long, long time. I've been doing this for a long, long time. And K2 really is kind of new. For an old vitamin that obviously has been around forever, it's it's very much new in the public consciousness. There are many, many people that still don't know anything about it, don't even know the difference you know, between vitamin K1, K2, the different forms of K2, why somebody would need to take, take K2. And then there's all these questions, right? And so that's what I want to get into are all these questions that people have. Because there are a lot of people that have started digging into it. As I stated, the episode that I did on vitamin K2, the first one that I ever did, 
was, I believe, my still my number one most downloaded episode that I've ever done. And uh, people just ate up that information because it is really interesting and not just interesting, but super vital uh, information. So let's talk about the title of the book first. I'm really curious. Why did you choose that title, The Vitamin K2 and the Calcium Paradox? It- That sounds very cerebral or maybe that it's academic, uh, but it really does capture at least the jumping off point for the book. And that's this concept that calcium is a double edged sword. And that was, I found that was a good jumping off point because for so long people have heard, especially around bone health, oh, calcium, take a ton of calcium. You need lots, you know, your bones need calcium. And the double edged sword is that we absolutely do need calcium in our bodies, but we need it in the right places. We need it in our bones and teeth. Uh, but when it ends up lining our arteries, uh, places like heel spurs, kidney stones, calcium become, you know, becomes a real problem and it can be dangerous and even deadly. We're talking about hardening of the arteries here. So that is the paradox when it comes to calcium. We need it, uh, but we need it in the right places or we can get into trouble. All right. And then, of course, the, the I don't know what it's called in in uh, in uh literal terms here but vitamin k2 and the calcium paradox and then the next part of the title how a little known vitamin could save your life now that sounds like a pretty big claim we'll say so what does that mean it does and it's not hyperbole i was hesitant that was a subtitle suggested by the publisher and when i thought about it i said no actually that's that's legit that is really true uh, because when calcium gets into the wrong places like your arteries where it can cause hardening of the arteries ultimately it can lead to heart attacks and strokes for example it can really have an impact there uh, and keeping your arteries clear is life saving Okay. Well, heart disease, of course, is the biggest killer in America, right? And uh, we have all these uh, drugs that are out there to try and prevent people from getting heart attacks and strokes and things like that. But I think oftentimes, especially when we're jumping to drugs, we're forgetting some of the most critical elements that our bodies require, uh, such as vitamin K2. And so let's talk about what K2 actually is. Uh, First off, it's Mm. K2. Uh, What does that mean? How does that differ from K1? Uh, Where are these vitamins from? What are they doing? Okay, well, K is a family of vitamins. Sometimes people will just say vitamin K. That's just sort of like saying vitamin B. Well, there's several different types of vitamin B. Fortunately, with the K family, it's much simpler. There's just two members, really, that are important for human health, K1 and K2. Most people, when they're talking about vitamin K or if they have any kind of concept about it, they're referring to vitamin K1. So this is a form of vitamin K that is found in green leafy vegetables. Its main and almost only role in the body is in blood clotting. And blood clotting is so important, it cannot be left to the whims of your diet. You can't bleed to death because you haven't had green leafies this week. So the body has a way of recycling vitamin K1. So you are almost never deficient in it. So you can more or less ignore vitamin K1. Vitamin K2 was discovered at the same time as vitamin K1, and they're very similar structurally. And researchers looked at these at the time and said, meh, K1, K2, same difference, they're the same thing, and then kind of ignored or overlooked that for many decades. And it turns out that vitamin K2 doesn't play a major role in blood clotting under normal circumstances. Its roles, it has many other roles in the body. 
Uh, we And because of that, we don't have a system to recycle it. It doesn't come from green leafy vegetables, and you can absolutely become deficient in it. Uh, and so it that but and, and that deficiency, by the way, can be overlooked fairly easily. So that really is kind of the big difference between K1 and K2, the food sources, the actions in the bodies, whether or not we can be deficient in it, and why K2 was overlooked for so long. Okay. And so there's, there's always been some concern. Uh, we've had people coming into Vitality Nutrition for years that are on blood thinners, for instance. And uh, so they're on, you know, Coumadin or Warfarin or Eliquis or some of these different drugs for this. Mm -hmm. And of course, you're not their doctor and I'm not their doctor. But the big concern is, well, I can't have vitamin K. I can't have vitamin K because I'm on this and it's going to screw up my, my clotting medication uh, or anticoagulant medication. How does one who is in that position determine whether or not they can be using K2, they should be using K2? Uh, how do you answer that question? Great question. And I'm glad you asked that right off the bat instead of saving it for the end. So uh, warfarin, coumadin, those type of blood thinners, they do work in the body by essentially creating an artificial deficiency of vitamin K. So any kind of vitamin K you bring into the body, whether it's K1, K2, can counteract those types of blood thinners, again, the warfarin and the coumadin. So for people who have been told not to eat green leafy vegetables, potentially vitamin K2 supplements can interfere with how their medicines act and they should, long story short, and very to make it very simple, stay away from vitamin K2. In my book, I do outline a way, and some people do work with hematologists on how they can take a small amount on a daily basis to keep their clotting stable, but that's not something anybody should undertake on their own. Usually I just say, if you're on Coumadin warfarin, avoid K vitamins. Everything else, all the other non-warfarin type blood thinners, uh, you know, Eliquis, you know, Effiant, Paroxys, Zeralto, Plavix, you know, platelet inhibitors, aspirin, they all work by a completely different mechanism that has no interaction uh, with K vitamins. The supplements aren't the problem that those people are not told to avoid green leafy vegetables. So those types of blood thinners don't have uh, an interaction. Okay, excellent. Uh, I, there's that's such a common question, and I wanted yep. to make sure that we got that out of the way. So, uh, another question that people have about vitamin K two once they start looking into, or I should say, vitamin K generally once they start looking into it, is it's known as a fat soluble vitamin, like vitamin mm -hmm. E and vitamin A and vitamin D. Although vitamin D isn't technically a vitamin, but whatever. Uh, with them it being fat soluble, is there a concern for toxicity? What do we know about dosages being too much, not enough, all that kind of thing? Great. Yeah, that's a really good question. We think of fat-soluble vitamins as having potential to, say, build up in the body. That doesn't happen with vitamin K2. We don't store it, in fact, really, to any significant extent, which is why we can very easily become deficient. Uh, it's been studied in very high amounts, uh, t found to be very safe. It has uh, more or less no toxicity. Not to say that we need to take it in mega doses, but uh, it's extremely safe is the main thing. All right. And how have there been studies done to estimate what percentage of uh, the population is deficient in K2? Do we know any numbers like that? There have been. There uh, haven't really been very many North American studies. These studies uh, typically have been done in Europe, but population studies look, and, and Europe is an area where actually they should be having a higher intake of vitamin K2. We can talk about that later when we talk about food sources. 
but basically showing that vitamin K2 deficiency is fairly widespread. Uh, in adults and teens, which is important for health, it has, has a lot of different implications for health. And you know, what does vitamin K2 deficiency mean? It means that you don't have enough vitamin K2 for it to, to do its job in keeping calcium in the right places in your body all the time. So you could get by for days, weeks, months, even years, but calcium is gradually building up in arteries or gradually coming out of bones. And so this isn't something that you will necessarily notice or causes a symptom that you can point to and say, oh, that's K2 deficiency. But it's one of these insidious kind of um, issues that can um, you know, become a problem over time. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the the interaction of vitamin K two with calcium and the calcium paradox, mm -hmm. as you stated it. What exactly is that? What does that mean? Mm -hmm. So the role of vitamin K two is to take calcium and guide it to where it's supposed to go in the body. It helps direct it towards bones and teeth, and it helps keep it out of and even uh, prevent as well as remove calcium from areas that it's building up where it shouldn't, like soft tissues, like arteries. For example, one study in postmenopausal women who had hardening of the arteries, so literal stiffening of the arteries, the arteries become uh, slightly calcified on a microscopic level. The stretchy tissues start to get some calcium buildup on them, makes the arteries stiff. Taking vitamin K2 was shown to restore arterial flexibility. In other words, help the arteries become soft again. So that's an example of what vitamin K2 does. It, it guides calcium towards your bones and teeth where it will be helpful, keeps it out of areas where it will be harmful. Well, I think what's so fascinating about that is that it's not just guiding calcium that you know is in your diet uh, and in, or in your supplements to where it should be, but it can actually displace calcium from areas in the body that it should not be, such as the arteries, and then move it over to where it should be. Is that right? Well, that's a great question. We don't know, in fact, if it's taking that calcium from one area and moving it to the other area, or whether once it you know, removes that calcium, whether that calcium is still useful, uh, whether that okay. will then leave the body and we get it from somewhere else, that's not clear. Uh, but ultimately, the fact that it's um, putting it in and, and taking it out of the right places is really what counts. Yeah, and, and the life-saving aspect of that, of course, kind of goes both ways, right? Because we one of the biggest issues that we deal with in North America, uh, it, particularly in women, is osteoporosis and falls that occur in osteoporosis that break hips and things like that, that can be the end of, of that person's life or the beginning of the end. And then, of course, heart disease we talked about. So on both ends, it's putting calcium where it should be to help to prevent that osteoporosis, as well as taking calcium from where it shouldn't be to help prevent the other side with the heart disease, which is just fascinating and certainly explains the subtitle of your book, right? So what my curiosity then has always been this, and I'm really, really interested to hear your answer on this one because, again, it's another question I get all the time. I've read and seen in many places, and, and full disclosure for those listening, I've yet to read your book. Uh, I, I understand I, I'm getting a copy and I will read it, and I'm very excited to read it, but uh, that's why I'm really curious about your answer here because I don't know what it's going to be. Um, I've read in other places that maybe we live in, some people even refer to it as a calcium toxic uh, society in North America, where we have so much calcium in our diets, so much calcium supplemented that perhaps we're actually getting so much that it's causing more harm than good. What's your feeling on that? 
I think that's potentially true. We do have very high calcium intake in our diets in North America. Uh, in Japan, for example, where people are typically much more bone healthy and heart healthy. Now, there's a few reasons to play into that, but they also have what might be considered by our standards extremely low calcium intake. So the, the point here is it's not how much calcium we're getting in. It's that the calcium we're getting in is going to the right places and not the wrong places. And, and yet you're right. I think that we end up with so much calcium and, and it ends up in the wrong places that it is problematic. Yeah, and there's some studies that I've read that indicate that women who've worn calcium supplements for 10 years, uh, we're assuming that they're taking them for the prevention of osteoporosis, things like that, uh, actually have a higher rate of heart disease. Is, is that your understanding as well? So that is the jumping off point of the book on page one, talking about these studies ah, okay. that show that women who take calcium supplements have... Up, depending on which study, 20 to 30% more heart attacks and strokes than those who don't. And when that research came out, in a way, it didn't get enough coverage because it's so confusing, right? Well, my doctor has been telling me to take calcium for years, and my doctor has been telling me to take calcium and vitamin D. Vitamin D increases calcium absorption, which seems like a great thing if, if you think that all you need is lots more calcium. But again, once the calcium is absorbed, vitamin D has no control over where it goes. It can end up anywhere. Um, so that really is important. Uh, I generally don't recommend calcium supplements. Like the concept used to be if you're a woman, you just need to take a calcium supplement all the time. Uh, mm. I don't think that's the case. For people who have osteopenia and osteoporosis, a small amount of supplemental calcium may be helpful. But as a general rule, say for all women, uh, we get plenty of calcium in our diets. Uh, I'm so glad that you said that. I know you've done more research on this than I have, but that's exactly where I, I've come down with the research that I've done. And I just think that, that it we are overdosing uh, to a very real extent. And, and I think it's important, too, uh, to mention to people that haven't maybe heard me talk about this before, uh, that part of the issue is not just calcium supplementation, but calcium that is being supplemented for us uh, as fortifications in food, right? We have calcium added to all types of foods. And of course, the calcium that they're adding in there is generally a phosphate or a carbonate or some type of calcium that's not particularly bioavailable anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're being added to food. So in many cases, we're supplementing calcium without knowing we're supplementing calcium. That's right. Yeah. And the body regulates the amount of calcium it has in it fairly tightly. We need it for our heart to beat and our nerves to fire. And it's it's always there. Uh, it's usually, you know, if we, we have low bone density, that's almost never because we didn't have enough calcium in our bodies. Uh, it's all the other nutrients that tell calcium where to go is the issue. Okay, so I, I, I love that. That's really, really helpful information, I think. So let's talk about this interaction that you mentioned briefly with vitamin D3 and calcium. Mm -hmm. Many of the supplements on the market right now are just that, calcium plus vitamin D3. I think the most, if I understand correctly, looking at sales figures, the biggest selling calcium in the world, or at least in America right now, uh, I'm not sure if it's in the world, but in America, is uh, vitamin D3 with calcium. Uh, it's 600 milligrams of calcium, and I believe it's 1,000 units of vitamin D3. There's no mm -hmm. vitamin K2. There's no magnesium. There's just those two ingredients. Why is that a problem? 
because uh, vitamin D will make us absorb more calcium. So uh, the level of the intestines helps us absorb more calcium. Now it does other things too, but just in terms of this relationship, that's what it does. And it will continue to make us absorb more calcium uh, without limit. So the more vitamin D you take, the more calcium you will absorb. And and again, the, the vitamin D has no control over where that calcium goes. That's not its job. It just makes you absorb more. So then you can end up with calcium. It's got to go somewhere. It can end up in your arteries or your heel spurs or other areas of the body uh, where it doesn't belong or it's not helpful. All right. And so then is there precaution uh, with vitamin D3 and how it's used? If someone's not taking a calcium supplement, but they're taking vitamin D3, because as you know, vitamin D3, everybody knows about vitamin D3 now. It's been mm -hmm. talked about ad nauseum on every health podcast in the world. There's tons of books that have been written about it. And then during COVID, there was even studies showing the importance of vitamin D3 with our immune systems and things like that. So vitamin D3 as a supplement is one of the most popular supplements in the world. Um, are there concerns that people should have in terms of taking it correctly? How does it relate to vitamin K2? Let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. So vitamin D3 is uh, quite safe in general at the doses that most people are taking it at. Now, uh, and I'm talking about, you know, 1,000, 2,000 IUs, even up to 5,000 IUs uh, a day on its own. Once you get past that, again, the research isn't clear, although certainly I have seen a couple cases of people who were taking, say, 10,000 IUs of vitamin D, just that, nothing else, uh, on its own for a few years and then finding out they had, say, calcification in their carotid arteries. That was an incidental finding on um, some tests. Certainly for the people who are recommending or taking mega doses, and I'm talking 50,000, even 100,000 IUs of vitamin D, the toxicity of vitamin D, when it becomes toxic, which again, it's not common, but at these high doses, it is massive calcification in the body. I did have an individual who emailed me to say, for the last six months, I was following such and such an expert and taking 100,000 IUs of vitamin D per day. I had a big heart attack and the doctors at the hospital told me they'd never seen the amount of calcium in arteries as they had seen in mine. And so that is from those huge mega doses of vitamin D is the problem. But at the smaller doses, you know, 1,000, even up to 5,000, not a problem. But the ultimate solution to that isn't necessarily, well, how much vitamin D is safe. Of course, that's a portion of the equation, but what nutrients works with vitamin D, it doesn't work on its own. So the vitamin K2 will take the calcium that vitamin D has helped you absorb and then guide it to the right places and out of the right places. So it essentially helps to mitigate any potential toxicity uh, that we have with vitamin D. That's how that works. Okay. So then is it your recommendation that if someone is supplementing with vitamin D3, that they also supplement with K2 regardless of the dose of vitamin D3? Yes, pretty much. Yep. They, they're, okay. they're buddies. They work together. When you take vitamin D, your body actually upregulates or makes more of the vitamin K2 dependent proteins. In other words, the proteins that uh, vitamin K2 will come in and activate to do this calcium moving thing. So in fact, when you take vitamin D, you're increasing your body's demand for and ability to benefit from vitamin K2. So they actually really are synergistic. They work together on a number of aspects of health. So studies have shown that taking vitamin D and K2 
two will help improve bone density and other aspects of bone health better than either nutrient alone. They really are buddies. They're synergistic. Okay. And there's some really good evidence too that I've read saying that magnesium plays a role with all of this too, and that K2, D3, and magnesium are kind of besties, you know, you're t calling them buddies. Um, what What's your take on that? What do people need to understand about that relationship? Yeah, that is really important. I did include a chapter on magnesium at the end of my book. And if I were to do an updated edition of the book, I would include a lot more information on magnesium. But you're absolutely right. Magnesium uh, and calcium are a pair. So with, as you know, with nutrition, so many things in life and nutrition, there's always these, these pairs. It's like the yin and the yang. They keep each other in balance. And um, you know, we are a very uh, high calcium intake society, but on the other hand, it's balancing nutrient, the magnesium, very low. Uh, we That's much harder nutrient to get in. Their recommended daily intake is much higher. Magnesium plays an important role in keeping calcium in its place. And yes, uh, there seems to be relationships with magnesium in D, magnesium in K2. It is a very important part of the equation of keeping calcium in its place. Excellent. Okay. So now I've got, there's a I'm trying to figure out the, the order that we should go about this because I really want to talk about food and vitamin K2. I always, as much as possible, try and help people figure out where they can, what they can change in their diets uh, to get the nutrition that they need. But before we get into that, I think it makes more sense to talk about this. In terms of ratios, you know, you said that, you know, people taking one to 5,000 units of vitamin D3, you feel like it's pretty safe regardless, but that they should also take vitamin K2 with it. Do you have a specific ratio that you recommend or a specific dose of each that you recommend? If someone's saying, say, taking 5,000 units, which near as I can tell is probably the most popular potency of vitamin D that's sold out there, how much mm -hmm. vitamin K2 would you suggest or, or do you have a suggestion for that? So this is the single most common FAQ, like top FAQ that I get about this. I didn't actually address it in my book because there wasn't necessarily research to back it up. These nutrients so far have been studied in isolation. We look at vitamin D, we look at vitamin K2, that kind of thing. And so I really like to make my recommendations evidence-based if there's some sort of research behind it. This is a very important question, a very logical question that hasn't been studied yet. So I've come up with my own rule of thumb that so far for the last 10 years, I still feel like it is helpful. The ratio I usually go with is roughly 100 micrograms of vitamin K2, and we can get into, you know, dosings and form in this uh, mm -hmm. you know, little bit, but for, for easy, simple math, 100 micrograms of K2 for every 1000 IU of vitamin D. Now, um, when you get to a certain amount, like even when you're taking 5,000 D, um, that can, first of all, get a little bit expensive if we're just looking at supplements. Uh, and I don't know if that ratio continues forever. In other words, I think at a certain point, the body makes a certain amount of vitamin K2 proteins, they will get filled with a certain amount of vitamin K2, and then you don't need to keep taking more and more and more. And so I, you know, for most people, I'll say, let's say if you're taking 5,000 D, you're probably okay with um, yeah, you can take up to 500 IUs of K2, but you're probably okay with three to f even 400. And that's based on food intake numbers that I'll, I'll come together with. But that 100 to 1000 for easy math um, is typically a rule I've been using. 
Okay. All right. So yeah, weird. for sure. So basically a kind of a 10 to one, at least in, in terms of the number, even though we're talking about units versus micrograms here. Yes. And that gets a little confusing, of course, because vitamin D3 is now being measured in micrograms for the first time. And so oh, we, okay. we've had to help That's... people understand that, at yeah. least here in America. Uh, have they done that in Canada? I'm curious. Is it still an we IU haven't... up there? Not quite yet, but I'm sure we okay. will follow suit and then everybody will be right. confused and yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thankfully, the bottles, uh, certainly natural factors bottles, I know, and I think most show both measurements so people can figure it out. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's uh, like the difference between, you know, the metric system uh, and uh, what we're using down here in America. Uh, it doesn't always make sense. So, OK, so then with vitamin K2 and D3. We know that D3 is the sun vitamin, the sunshine vitamin, right? We can get plenty of it if we allow ourselves to get it uh, in the sun, or we can supplement it. Or if you live in a place uh, like uh, like I do in Utah, we can get lots of sun six months out of the year, not so much the other six months out of the year. So I mm -hmm. tend to supplement my vitamin D more in the wintertime than I do in the summertime. Uh, where does K2 come from? How does someone increase their K2 dosage without necessarily taking a supplement or augment the supplement they're taking uh, through food? Mm -hmm. So there's two different food sources of vitamin K2. It's a fat soluble vitamin. It is found in certain types of animal foods, uh, like egg yolks, butter, um, goose liver, in fact, and uh, goose fat, the fat uh, of certain animals, well, well, almost all animals, but much more so when the animals are out on the pasture eating green grass. Mm. Uh, so your average, you know, grocery store egg with those sad, pale yolks, they will have a smidgen of vitamin K2 in them. But if you can get those lovely grass-fed summertime eggs that have those bright orange yolks naturally, not from any additives that were put into it, those, just two of those, uh, will give you probably a, a, a healthy daily serving of your vitamin K2. You'd have to eat about a dozen of the store-bought eggs every day uh, to get mm. K2 from that. So, so grass-fed animal foods, which there will be a natural seasonal variation in how much K2 in, like in sure. Canada, we can't, you know, grass-fed foods is not a reality most of the year because there's no grass when it's covered in snow. So that's one source is more grass-fed animal foods. The other source of vitamin K2, which is uh, provides a more consistent source year round is certain types of fermented foods. So some, but not all bacteria, have the ability to make vitamin K2. So for example, certain types of cheeses, regardless, it doesn't matter if the milk that went into it was grass fed, that's not important. There, even if there was no vitamin K2 in the milk, the bacteria will make vitamin K2. So Brie, Gouda, Jarlsberg, uh, Gruyere, off the top of my head, uh, those are some cheeses that are very high in vitamin K2. So uh, and, and that would be year round source. So European diets would typically be higher in vitamin K2 because they would tend to eat more of those uh, types of foods on a daily basis. And then there's one food, it's a Japanese fermented soybean food called natto, N-A-T-T-O. And it's the highest known food for vitamin K2 in the world that we've measured. Um, I think about 400 micrograms for just a tiny little serving of it. And certainly they eat this regionally in Japan. And it's been shown that the areas where they eat it compared to where they don't, uh, it's often served as a breakfast food. Um, people in those areas have better bone density and better cardiovascular health, which is interesting. Uh, that is interesting. Okay, so then, and of course, natto, for people who aren't familiar with it, is uh, my understanding, I've 
yet to try it. I keep saying I'm going to, but it's a bit of an acquired taste from what I've been told. <laughs> it is an acquired taste and texture and odor. Now, I'm surprised. I'm always surprised at the amount of people who like it right off the bat. So I don't uh, want to discourage anybody from right. taking it. I got a bit of hate mail from the natto lovers after writing my book and suggesting that I <laughs> didn't love it. People were sending me natto recipes and even frozen natto in the mail. Um, because there are a lot of natto lovers out there and it's absolutely worth yeah. trying because it's a great source of vitamin K2. All right. And, but of course, eggs, and like, we, like you talked about also it's something that's quite popular now and, and really starting to uh, catch some steam in the marketplace are, uh, you know, like uh, pasture raised, grass fed, uh, beef liver and things like that. Would we also find vitamin K2 in those areas? Mm -hmm. Beef in liver, calf meats? liver. Goose liver, okay. if you can find it, is one of the highest foods in vitamin K2. So think about the French diet. You've got your brie cheese, you've got your pâté de foie gras. This is a very vitamin K2 rich diet. We used to call it the French paradox. How can they eat all this rich, creamy food and have such low rates of heart disease? And it turns out it wasn't a paradox at all. That rich, creamy food was providing them with K2 to keep their arteries clear. And they smoke like chimneys. They should all be dead of uh, heart disease, but they're not. And that may be that their uh, rich, creamy diet is saving them. Yeah, a lot of butter over there too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Okay, so then now we've 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 talked a little bit about well, quite a bit now, and we understand that maybe it's about a ten to one ratio, at least as far as your recommendation on the K two to the D three. Um, what about magnesium to K two to D three? Do you have a recommendation there uh, that the the research would back up in terms of of uh, that that need and that dosage? Oh, great question. I've never thought about it actually in terms of a ratio. Um, and I'd have to look at the literature. Certainly there is research showing that we need adequate amounts of magnesium in order to activate our vitamin D, right? Like a vitamin D is like a precursor and it turns into a hormone when we ingest it and we need magnesium for that purpose. But I haven't seen, uh, that's a great question. I'm going to think about it and, and I will look up to see if there might be a ratio Certainly, you want to be getting in at least the recommended daily intake of magnesium, which is around 400 micro, uh, excuse me, milligrams per day. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's not nothing. And that's also very challenging to get just through diet alone. And maybe it's likely that we need more when we're under stress, for example, or maybe in the summertime and we're making more vitamin D, maybe we need more magnesium. I think that stands to reason. So getting at least that amount, if not more, um, but Good question in terms of ratio. I'm going to have to look into it. Yeah, I don't know if there, I don't have an answer to that one for sure. I, I don't know mm -hmm. if there is a, a ratio and maybe it is just getting enough magnesium generally, which I agree with you, the 400 milligrams seems to be about the right dose for most of us mm -hmm. of a good magnesium. But I did think I would ask and see if you knew more than I, more than I did about that. Uh, let's, I, I have another question for you that I think is maybe reserved for people who've already done a bit of research on vitamin K2, have maybe listened to a few podcasts, read a few books on this, but it's a question that I really am curious about because I don't feel like I know the answer to it at all. Vitamin K2 is also, a, there's a little bit of a group there too, because there's vitamin, M, there's one called MK7 and there's one called MK4. They're both vitamin K2. What can you tell us about the difference between the different forms of vitamin K2? What do we know from the research in terms of, is there one that's just simply superior? Do they both have a place? Um, are there other sources of vitamin K2 besides those? Mm -hmm. So this is where things get a little bit technical, but... 
helpful and worthwhile to understand. It certainly is important for supplement shopping. So just to back up, there are a number of types of vitamin K2 in nature. Now, this may start to sound confusing, but you don't need to worry about getting some of each. The fact is, if you're getting some of any kind, you're doing well. Uh, the types of vitamin K2 you will find in nature, there's a short chain form, what's called MK2. Four, and that you will find in grass-fed animal foods, things like the egg yolks and the butter, etc. That's the MK4. It's a short-chain form. Then there are a variety of long-chain forms. So the fermentation, uh, when you're looking at things like brie, gouda, Jarlsberg, natto, those fermented foods contain a range of longer-chain types of vitamin K2, MK7, 8, 9, even 10. MK7 is the most common. For example, uh, the natto that we talked about is extremely high in just this MK7. And, and a lot of the research has been done around that form because it's easy to obtain, because um, just because of this long chain, it stays in the body for longer. So a single daily dose will work well versus the shorter chain form, some of the earlier supplements on the market, and they may still be available down in the States that we don't have them up here in Canada. Um, you'd have to take them three times a day because that MK4 form doesn't last in the body as long. Now there's a lot of research using the MK4, a lot of the early research just focused on that type. In terms of convenience, that single daily dosing that you'll get in terms of supplements, uh, from the MK7 is is very, uh, it's, I think it's a huge advantage. And more of the current research on vitamin K2 is using that form for that reason. Cheeses like the ones I mentioned will have MK8, 9, 10. Maybe those, maybe down the road, we'll find out that those last in the blood even longer. Maybe you only need them once a week. I don't know. I'm only speculating at this point. But the point is MK4 and MK7, you can think of as the short and the long chain, those are the two main types, certainly that you'll find in supplements, and uh, it reflects these different varieties we see in nature. But if I understand what you're saying correctly, as long as you're getting vitamin K2, it really doesn't matter too much if you're getting enough vitamin K2, whether it's the four or the seven, other than if you're taking MK4, say once a day, maybe you should be taking that one twice a day to give you a little bit better coverage. Is that Twice or three times. Two or three and times. And the traditional okay. research is using it in, in quite a bit higher amounts. Uh, the MK7 studies are in lower amounts. You you might be able to get away with less uh, is, is, you know, the suggestion here. So the MK7 is a, con there's a convenience factor with it um, that I, you know, it's it's the type I use and, and use and, and recommend, you know, for that reason. Okay. All right. Yeah. Cause I, I do get quite a few questions on that too. MK4 is, is definitely is, I would say losing steam in terms of popularity. The more research that comes out on MK7, it seems mm -hmm. the more experts are, are recommending that for sure. So with the, and that actually kind of brings up, I, I talked about this on an episode of the show uh, a few months ago. There's a company down here. I don't know if they're up in Canada or not. That's uh, recommending magnesium and they have seven different forms of magnesium in their product. And one of their their little taglines uh, in their sales pitch is that you, we need all seven forms of this magnesium, which mm -hmm. I'm so glad you're making that face because <laughs> because like when I heard that, I said, study to back that yeah, up. I don't think I said, the body really knows much. Okay, sure, we absorb them differently. They may do certain different things, but 
Um, it's yeah, still it's, magnesium, right? So yeah, it's the, yeah. the key is, are we getting the magnesium or are we not getting the magnesium? Are we able to absorb it or are we not? And it sounds like that's basically the same with vitamin K2, just get enough of it, even though some of it might come from cheese and some of it might come from eggs and some of it might come from a supplement with MK7 or 4. Is that your take on it? That's absolutely my take on it. Although certainly when it comes to supplements, like I said, the MK7 forms, easier, more convenient, just once a day. And so I really like those advantages. But you're right, when it comes to food, yeah, some days we'll get it from our eggs. Or if it's the summertime, we can get some nice grass fed butter, fantastic. Most of the time, it'll be from things like cheese, or if you love natto, um, that may be your source. Yes, it's just getting it in. All right. Fantastic. Good. Well, see, this is great because for the most part, um, I think I've been saying the right things here. And now I'm <laughs> it turns out that uh, the research that uh, that I've done uh, sounds like it stacks up with the research that you've done. And, and that that's exciting for me as well, because this was really two years ago when I started looking at this. The show that I did actually was about the relationship of calcium to magnesium to K2 to D3. Hmm. And I had always talked uh, I, for years, I've been talking about calcium being overdone uh, supplementally, particularly, you know, really poor forms of, of calcium and magnesium being underdone. That was kind of where mm -hmm. I started, you know, years ago. And then all of a sudden, vitamin D3, the, the research on vitamin D3 started coming out. And and the we, we have this crazy range of, you know, the, the normal range of vitamin D3 in blood, which is really, really big. And so the question is, well, how, you know, where do we need to be on that range? And so then I started talking a lot about vitamin D3 and I talked a lot about vitamin D3 and a lot about magnesium, a lot about calcium. And I actually, it was a, a customer of mine, uh, Dr. Kate, that came in and said, hey, I'm reading a lot about vitamin K2 and that I shouldn't take vitamin D3 unless I'm taking vitamin K2. What's your take on that? And I said, uh, <laughs> I don't think I know the answer to that question. And, uh, I love it when I get questions that I can't answer. Cause I, you know, at, like you have, I've been doing this a long time. I've heard a lot of questions and that was the first time someone had really put it to me that way. And so I started digging and thought, you know, I really need to understand that. And my gosh, it was like I'd opened up this amazing box of goodness when I started digging into K2 and the vital nature that it plays in our health. And that's when I decided, okay, I've got to tell my audience about this. And frankly, I felt, I, I, I think I said on that show, I was embarrassed that I hadn't talked about it sooner and that it hadn't uh, come to my attention sooner because it was such a big deal. And again, you're, you were way ahead of this game writing this book 10 years ago. I'm so excited to have had you and your expertise here on Vitality radio to talk about it. Um, I want to finish up with just a couple of things that I, I want to reiterate a couple of things that we talked about earlier and ask a couple more quick questions just to make sure everybody's clear on this. Uh, first question I do have, because people always ask this, you said that it's very common for people to be deficient in vitamin K2, mm -hmm. uh, probably likely it sounds like, um, but is there a way that people can actually know if they are or they're not? Uh, this is something that I wrote about in the book that I thought would be resolved by now. There were groups working on tests. Um, it's not as simple as vitamin D where you can just actually do a blood test. Mm -hmm. Certainly vitamin K2 uh, sufficiency or, or you know checking uh, levels, tests are available for in academic and research settings. 
uh, it's not as, like I said, direct as just measuring vitamin K2 levels. You end up measuring the vitamin K2 dependent proteins. How many of them are there in the blood and are they activated with the K2? Are they doing their job? So that's a little bit more complex. Long story short, I thought there would be a test available by now and still there isn't. There has been a lot of challenges with developing those tests. So at this point, uh, it's indirect things. You know, if you find out your bone density is low or you get a, you know, a CAC scan and find out you've got calcium in your arteries, those things all heavily suggest that K2 deficiency has played a role, but still not a direct test available. Okay. All right. And then the question then would be if someone wants to supplement vitamin K2, not knowing whether or not they're deficient in it. Um, first off, we know that this is where the reiteration comes in. If someone is supplementing vitamin D3, they ought to be supplementing vitamin K2. Yes. If someone's absolutely. not taking vitamin D3, they feel like they're getting enough from the sun or, you know, what, whatever reason that they're not taking the extra vitamin D3, they want to take vitamin K2 based on bone health and, and arterial health and cardiovascular wellness and all these things. Is there, are there any safety concerns for people taking K2, even if maybe they don't quote unquote need it? Not at all. As long as they're not on warfarin, coumadin type blood thinners, no concern. And certainly if people are getting their vitamin D from the sun, that's doing the same things to you as a supplement of vitamin D. So you need that K2. Um, it's not like it's just going to take care of itself, just like your sun exposure took care of the vitamin D. You, you need the K2, but yeah, absolutely not, very safe. Yeah. Not getting the K2 from the sun, right? You are not. All right. And if someone is eating a really good, healthy diet, they're getting a lot of grass-fed fats, uh, they're, they're doing these things that you're suggesting, and they take K2 on top of that, um, toxicity really isn't a concern with vitamin K2. Do we know of a toxic dose at all? We don't because it's, and it's been tested in very, you know, 50,000 micrograms, extremely high amounts. And that's because it works. Basically the body will have these K2 dependent proteins when they're activated, completely activated by K2. If you take more K2, the K2 just has nowhere to go. In other words, it has no harm to do. Um, yeah, we don't know of any toxic dose at some high doses. Some people I think have complained of stomach upset, very rarely, although I haven't heard this in a long time, I have mentioned people who feel like they had like a sense of a racing heart. We're not 100% sure why that happens, but I think with those people, they're low in magnesium. Uh, but there's mm. it's so few reported incidents of that. And again, I haven't heard that in years, so I'm not sure uh, what the issue was there. But long story short, very safe. Excellent. Okay. So I think that we've done a really good job of answering probably the most common questions and maybe some more uncommon questions on this. I am so fascinated by this topic. I cannot wait to read your book. So I appreciate you sending me one. I'll definitely give a little book review once I've read it uh, here on Vitality Radio. So then uh, before I let you go, are there any other things that we maybe we have missed that you think people need to understand about K2 or anything else that you want to touch on before I let you go? I think we really did a good job at covering the bases, hopefully making it clear uh, and practical. Um, yeah, no, I, I think we covered it all. 
Fantastic. Well, it's been fascinating having you on. Of course, Dr. Kate is an educator for um, Natural Factors, a fantastic company that I absolutely love. The K2 that is by far our most popular K2 at Vitality Nutrition is the 120 uh, microgram K2 from Natural Factors. And many of our clients are using a combination of the D3 and the K2, as well as uh, even the magnesium glycinate uh, from Natural Factors as well. So these are really excellent uh, quality products, really high bioavailability products. And now we're learning, and this was a big concern of mine, uh, Kate, that I I really didn't know the answer to until I started digging into it in the last couple of years. And and I'm glad that you were able to, to confirm it for me is am I ever going to be recommending too much K2, right? Am I going to get somebody in trouble by saying, hey, you really need to be uh, uh, taking this when you're taking your vitamin D3 and that kind of thing. So I believe we have covered the bases really, really well. Again, I'm so excited to have uh, your book in my hands soon. And this was a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining me on Vitality Radio. You're welcome, Jared. It's been a real pleasure. Great chatting with you. All right. So that was uh, just an awesome conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, Kate Rayome is clearly a uh, an expert on this topic. And I don't, I don't love to throw around the word expert because we know that some experts are more expert than others. But uh, I think it's pretty clear from that conversation. She knows what she's talking about. I hope it was helpful for you. Of course, if you have questions, you can call us at Vitality Nutrition at 801-292-6662. That's 801-292. 6662. You can jump on our website, vitalitynutrition.com, and open up a chat if you have questions there, or just check these things out. Of course, we'll have uh, notes in the show description and uh, links for you. We'll link to the book. We'll link to some uh, some of the research articles that, uh, that I find fascinating about this, as well as to the products. Thank you so much for listening to Vitality Radio. I'm Jared St. Clair. Have a wonderful day. listening to the vitality radio podcast enjoy your week in the meantime jared will be feverishly searching for the latest nutrition info to educate you on and wading into mounds of propaganda to help steer you through it vitality radio is researched and written by jared st Clair. our awesome music is by brian bob young support vitality radio by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on apple podcasts youtube or your favorite podcast source Don't forget to follow us at Vitality Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please let us know your thoughts about this episode by using the hashtag Vitality Radio Podcast. And if you like what you hear, go tell somebody with a share, a screenshot, or an airdrop. Thank you. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. The FDA has not evaluated this podcast. This podcast is provided with the understanding that information shared is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast is not a substitute for care by a medical professional. Thank you.